Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, Nehemiah chapter 8. Now today is going to be packed with information. So have your pencils ready. Up to now, the story of Nehemiah has been mainly about a devout, skilled, single-minded Jewish man who was sent to Jerusalem from the Persian capital by God to lead an endeavor that others had tried but failed. Rebuilding the walls and city of Jerusalem. This is one of those books in the Bible that opens up a can of worms we might regret not leaving alone. It meddles in our personal lives. It meddles in our relationship with our Lord as we examine our motives for what we believe and what we do. It boldly calls us to personal action to make right what has been wrong and to set aside our own best interests for the good of our faith community. We have also seen many practical applications of biblical principles that are easily adapted to our modern lives, others that leave us wondering. We have been given the example of not only what strong godly leadership looks like in operation, but also the challenges that a godly leader faces when sometimes the only option is to pick a solution from a short list among which none is particularly attractive. And we have seen the response of a godly people who trusted God, who knew their cause was greater than themselves, and so they wholeheartedly dove headlong into accomplishing it. Now surprisingly, we also found that the enemies of Judah and their location and their irrational distrust and hatred for the Jews was the same then as it is now. The desire of a pagan enemy to occupy and control Jerusalem was the same then as it is now. But where is this burning desire, this stubborn ultimatum to have Jerusalem as their own, which seems to dominate the thoughts of Israel's enemies, coming from? Recall that Nehemiah was perplexed by it too. And he responded to Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem's demand to control the rebuilding of Jerusalem by saying, but you have no share, right, or history to commemorate in Jerusalem. In other words, what about Jerusalem makes controlling it so important to you? Since Jerusalem has never been your home, your territory, or your capital. But it's always been so for the Jews. See, that question is best answered by recalling the ancient covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
All the issues about who the Hebrews are, how they were established, where they are to live, who owns the land, which single city on all the earth has Yehovah set His claim and name to? What constitutes the identity of a set-apart people for God? All of this is contained within the Abrahamic covenant. And thus the battle that we see in Nehemiah over Jerusalem and the battle we see in our time over Jerusalem is all about the Abrahamic covenant. Even though few people on this planet, including the antagonists, even realize it. And finally, we ended our last lesson with a question whose answer is provocative, but it ought not to be. Who is the bride of Christ? Now on the surface, the book of Nehemiah seems like a strange place to visit that issue until we go to God's word and find out the answer to that question is it's Jerusalem. And that answer isn't allegorical. And it's not derived from hazy hints or or vague clues and it is not a man-made doctrine. Rather, Jerusalem as Christ's bride is explicitly stated in Revelation 21. Verses 9 and 10 we read this. One of the seven angels having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues approached me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so he carried me off in spirit to the top of a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Any questions? See, this revelation Jerusalem is sometimes called New Jerusalem only because in its final form it appears on the new earth. That is, everything is made new. However, the new Jerusalem is still in Israel. And it is still Jerusalem, the city where God has established His name. So, we find that this matter of Jerusalem is not one that is purely temporal or temporary. It doesn't end when Christ returns. It doesn't even end when heaven and earth pass away and are replaced with new ones. Jerusalem is central to God's plans, not just of redemption, but of the eternal state that all whose names have been written into the book of life shall experience. Now to be clear, however, Jerusalem cannot be separated from its people. And it's always been so. Jerusalem, since Jerusalem is the city where God has placed His name, then it's intended to be occupied only by those humans upon which He has placed His name. Once again, this is the battle that Nehemiah was facing and modern day Israel is facing. And since this is connected directly to the Abrahamic covenant, we can continue in our study of Nehemiah understanding that this is the context for what we are reading, both in the Bible and in today's news headlines. However, as we begin chapter 8, we transition. We transition into the theological realm from what 
to this point has seemed like mostly practical historical records of a building program and, and documenting problems with some local troublemakers and, and of listing certain prominent Jewish families that returned from exile in order to take a census. And since Ezra was the spiritual leader of Judah who arrived several years before Nehemiah did, we see him reemerge and reintroduce the covenant of Moses to the people of Judah who had just finished the wall. So, we need to keep in perspective that Nehemiah and Ezra were living around 420 B.C. While the Abrahamic covenant had been ordained around 1800 B.C. So, for the Jews, that made the Abrahamic covenant very ancient and so very distant from their thoughts. The covenant of Moses that Ezra would teach from, which is the main subject of chapter 8, was around 900 years old by now. So it too was very ancient and very distant. Hebrew society, the world in general, had undergone tremendous changes and advancements since those exiles of the Egyptian exodus received the Torah out in the wilderness. Most Jews, the tribe of Judah, were living outside of their homeland. Ten of the original tribes of Israel were now exiled, missing, and scattered all over the Asian continent having assimilated into the Gentile nations where they were now living. Let me put this in easier to grasp terms. We are today living about the same amount of time distance from the Crusades as Nehemiah was living from the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. It's a long time. And for us, whatever happened during the Crusades is not only ancient history, but drawing any practical parallels between the living conditions and and political and religious realities of that time versus our world of the 21st century is almost unimaginable. That is at least partly what Ezra was dealing with as he read the law to those Jews. And then the people and even the lay leaders tried to figure out how they might be able to follow God's laws and commandments considering the radically different circumstances they faced as opposed to when Moses had first received it on Mount Sinai. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 8 together. Now we're going to start with the final verse of chapter 7 since it really belongs as part of the first verse of chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1140. When the seventh month arrived, after the people of Israel had resettled in their towns, all the people gathered with one accord in the open space in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the Torah teacher to bring the scroll of the Torah of Moshe, which Adonai had commanded Israel. Ezra the Kohen, the priest, brought the Torah before the assembly, which consisted of men, women, and all children old enough to understand. It was the first day of the seventh month. 
Facing the open space in front of the water gate, he read from it to the men, the women, and the children who could understand from early morning until noon. All the people listened attentively to the scroll of the Torah. Ezra the Torah teacher stood on a wood platform which they had made for the purpose and beside him on his right stood uh, Matityah, Shema, Aniyah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah. While on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the scroll where all the people could see him because he was higher than all the people. And when he opened it, the people rose to their feet. Ezra blessed Adonai, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. As they lifted up their hands, they bowed their heads, they fell prostrate before Adonai with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Sherefiah, Yamin, Akuv, Shabtai, Hodiah, Maaserah, Klita, Azariah, Yozavad, Hanan, and Palayah explained the Torah to the people, while the people remained in their places. They read clearly from the scroll in the Torah of God, translated it, and enabled them to understand the sense of what was being read. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the Tirshatah, Ezra the Kohen, the priest and Torah teacher, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, Today is consecrated to Adonai, your God. Don't be mournful and don't weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the Torah. And then he said to them, Go, eat rich food, drink sweet drinks, and send portions to those who can't provide for themselves. For today is consecrated to our Lord. Don't be sad. Because the joy of, the, of Adonai is your strength. In this way the Levites quieted the people as they said, Be quiet, for today is holy. Don't be sad. Then the people went off to eat, drink, send portions and celebrate because they had understood the words that had been proclaimed to them. On the second day, the heads of the father's clans of all the people assembled with the priests and the Levites before Ezra the Torah teacher to study the words of the Torah. And they found written in the Torah that Adonai had ordered through Moses that the people of Israel were to live in Sukkot during the feast of the seventh month. And that they were to announce and pass the word in all of their cities in Jerusalem. Go out to the mountains, collect branches of olives and wild olives and myrtles and palms and other leafy trees to make Sukkot as prescribed. So the people went out. They brought them. They made Sukkot for themselves, each one on the roof of his house, also in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the house of God, in the open space by the water gate, and in the open space by the Ephraim gate. The entire community of those who had returned from the exile made Sukkot and lived in the Sukkot. For the people of Israel had not done this since the days of Yeshua the son of Nun, Joshua, who is being referred to, by the way. So there was very great joy. Also, they read every day, from the first day until the last day, in the scroll of the Torah of God, and they kept the feast for seven days. Then on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. The first issue that we encounter 
is whether what we just read occurred immediately upon completion of the walls, which was on Elul the 25th, or had some time passed. See, Elul is the sixth month of the year. And we're told that the congregational meeting and celebration led by Ezra, that is described in Nehemiah 8, began on the first day of the seventh month, the next month, which is Tishri. However, could that possibly be the case? I mean, the people would have had to finish the wall and then exhausted, return home to their various towns and villages, gather all their families, and then journey back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah would have had to gather all of the family leaders around Judah for the census in less than a week. Many scholars surmise that such a scenario is a practical impossibility. And so the... the, the solution, they offer the solution that the historical value of this section of Nehemiah is worthless fantasy. Or that perhaps this congregational gathering actually occurred the following year, not immediately after completing the wall. Now, once again, with no evidence, only personal opinions and speculations. Some Bible scholars seek to question the veracity or the historical accuracy of God's word. I see no practical reason why this couldn't have happened exactly as told. I mean, since this event of chapter 8 involved a religious gathering, why couldn't their religious leader, Ezra, have been planning this event for some time? while the wall building was ongoing. I mean, it's, it's not impossible to do two things at once and coordinate them. In fact, there's no reason that these celebrations of the seventh month couldn't have happened regardless of the stage of wall uh, reconstruction uh, Nehemiah might have been at. Completing the wall was not at all needed to have this event. Now, for sure, this was not a celebration to commemorate completing the wall. It was to celebrate God's ordained biblical feasts. And those occurred on known and fixed days in the Torah. Now if we know the Torah, we know that the first day of the seventh month, Tishri, is called Yom Teruah, the day of the trumpets, which is the first in the series of the three fall feasts, all of which are celebrated in the seventh month of the year. Leviticus 23.24 Tell the people of Israel in the seventh month, the first of the month is to be for you a day of complete rest for remembering a holy convocation announced with blasts on the shofar. In Numbers 29.1 In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you are to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. It is a day of blowing the shofar for you. Now, How to observe the Day of Trumpets is only lightly defined in Holy Scripture. We are given the ritual offerings to be made by the priests at the temple and we have the call for the common people to come to a holy convocation. But other than for blowing shofars or trumpets and that the day is to be a Sabbath, there is no other instruction. And as we move through this chapter, we notice that no mention is made of celebrating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is on the tenth day of the seventh month 
exceptionally holy and important observance. Instead, we jump right over it to Sukkot, which begins on the 15th day of the same month. Now, in our time, the biblical feast celebrated on the first day of the seventh month is no longer called Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets. Rather, it's called Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. And as the two different names tell us, obviously, these are two entirely different purposes for the same day. This says something strange has happened over time. So this would be a good place to take a brief detour to explain some things about the Jewish calendar. Now I realize we've talked about this several times, but it is complex. And since it is something that modern day religious and secular Jews, Messianic Jews, and even Hebrew roots folks pay close attention to, we need to understand it to help us better understand the scriptures. And frankly, I'm inundated with questions about biblical and Jewish calendar issues. And and most of the time, what's assumed is ill-informed and is actually some peculiar mix of tradition, Bible, Judaism, and just plain error. So let's begin with this issue of calling the first day of the seventh month, Tishri, Jewish New Year. Now common sense will ask a very simple question that I hope you've already thought about. How can a new year begin in the seventh month of that year? Seem a little logical? It sounds like an oxymoron. By all reason and logic, shouldn't New Year's Day ought to be the first day of the first month of any new year, right? See, the truth is, there is nothing approaching consensus within Judaism and within Jewish and Christian academia to explain exactly when it happened that the Jews started celebrating the first day of Tishri as the start of a new year. What we do know is this. The words Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the, the head of the year, never appear in the Hebrew Bible. There is also no mention of a new year celebration. The first documented mention of the first day of Tishri as being celebrated as Jewish New Year only happens in the first century AD around the time of the Apostle Paul. In the teachings of Hillel and Shammai these leading Jewish teachers of that day there is a recorded discussion of the proper prayers to be recited on New Year's Day, the first day of Tishri. A little bit later, in the 200s AD, the newly created Mishnah records rules for the first of Tishri being reckoned as Jewish New Year. And among those rules is that this date shall be used for counting years that is, 
the Hebrew calendar will advance by one on the first day of Tishri, and it shall be used for calculating sabbatical cycles, and, therefore, for counting jubilee years. What we also know from ancient records is that the first day of Tishri was regularly used by the Babylonians and the Persians for counting the years of a king's reign. And that the first day of Tishri was typically counted as the beginning of the agricultural year. Further, other than for pure speculation by Bible commentators and Jewish rabbis, there is no written evidence, there is no Jewish tradition that can be found that claims that before the Jews were exiled to Babylon, there even existed such a thing as Jewish New Year. So, the only thing ordained or celebrated on the first day of Tishri, the seventh month, in the Bible, is Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets or the feast of trumpets. Now, biblically speaking, it's the month of Nisan that is called the first month of the year. And that is found in Leviticus 23 and in other places. And of this, there's no debate. So clearly, the first day of Tishri as the designated uh, New Year, even though it still retains the designation as the seventh month of the year, memorializes some change that occurred, but that the Jews weren't quite ready to completely renumber the months of the year to accommodate this new tradition. Now let's talk about this from another angle. The Torah and the Old Testament do not use names for months. Rather, like the days of the week, the he in Hebrew, months are only numbered 1 through 12. So why are modern day Jewish calendars not called by the number of the month, like in the Torah, but instead are called by specific names, like Nisan and Elul and Tishri? Because those month names aren't Hebrew. They're Babylonian. And once again, we find no use of those names until sometime after their return from Babylon. Makes sense. And since modern Hebrew Bibles are taken from the Masoretic texts, which were written around the 10th century AD, we'll often find those Babylonian names inserted into the scriptural texts, but they weren't there in the original. They're not there in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Truth is, it doesn't really hurt anything to give months names rather than numbers, any more than it hurts anything to give names to the days of the week instead of the biblical way of just numbering them. However, as anyone who has lived long enough learns, little things that at the time seem insignificant can lead to bigger things of much greater significance. One step down any slippery slope almost inevitably paves the way for more steps. What is self-evident is that the Jewish exile to Babylon represented a sea change in how the Jews called their months 
in the ways they celebrated both biblically ordained and man-made events, and even, as with Rosh Hashanah, changed the way they counted years on a calendar. The modern Karaite Jews, who are strictly religious but do not follow rabbinic law, refuse to follow anything but the biblical definition of the calendar as we find it in the Torah. So for them, the new year occurs on Nisan the first, the biblically defined first month. And from the practical viewpoint, we must also remember that only about 5% of Jews ever returned to their homeland, Judah, from the Babylonian exile. And that's probably too generous of an estimate. Almost all Jews voluntarily remained where they were in exile and later became known collectively as the diaspora. So it's rather easy to see how after three or four generations in a foreign land, a land that welcomed them, and in a situation where assimilation made life much easier, the Jews adopted many Babylonian ways and traditions and and naturally some of the associated vocabulary. And some of those Babylonian ways and traditions slowly crept back with them to Judah, including a New Year celebration on the first day of Tishri, which was an established Babylonian tradition, but was given the very Jewish name of Rosh Hashanah, so that it fit in better with Jewish society. And by the way, the full name for the Babylonian month of Tishri is Ara Tishritum. Now in Aramaic, the language of Babylon, it meant the month of beginning. So I'm sorry to inform you that when Orthodox Jews, secular Jews, Messianic Jews, and Hebrew roots folks stress celebrating Rosh Hashanah, you know what we're celebrating? Babylonian New Year. That's right. So to turn up our noses at the typical January 1st New Year and just declare it as a pagan Roman day and therefore not biblical while insisting that Jewish New Year must be biblical and holy is just simply wrong. In fact, it's rather disingenuous to even call it Jewish New Year because the Jews didn't even invent it. They borrowed it from their Babylonian captors. But what perhaps is most troubling to me about all this is the entire notion of the Jewish leadership and Jewish people virtually discarding the name and occasion that God gave to that day, Yom Teruah. And all but the most religious Jews discarding the Torah commandment that it is a Sabbath of complete rest and a day for blowing trumpets and nothing more. Many Jews in Israel, most outside of Israel, see it as a time of partying, just as do Gentiles on New Year's. And this is because such a change in both name and meaning disconnects an important God-ordained holy day from the seven biblical feasts, of which it's the fifth feast. 
And it confuses and it obscures its prophetic place as a milestone of the redemptive process in the series of seven biblical feasts. Yom Teruah is the victim of that slippery slope that we just talked about. Now I'm going to close our detour of the Jewish calendar with this so I can offend everybody equally. I have no doubt that there was nothing but goodwill and good intent when Christmas was invented. However, just as with when Rosh Hashanah was created, Christmas was created using existing pagan holiday symbols and dates and well-established religious and political and traditional reasons for its existence that had nothing to do with Yeshua. With the result that it got all mixed in with an otherwise admirable purpose for its creation. Of itself, there's nothing wrong with calling a, a day New Year's Day to mark the start of a new year. Or calling a day Christmas to remember the birth of Christ. However, look what it's led to. Just look. In fact, the result was entirely predictable. One seemingly harmless man-made tradition opens the door to the next. And once that tradition is established and the biblical ways are modified or even just set aside, then anything goes. And then the God-commanded biblical holy days become secondary or they just become forgotten. But the holidays, born from new traditions, well, they they become dominant because they please us more than the days that God ordained. Why is that? Because they came from our imaginings in the first place. So we can make them anything we want them to be. Now if we pay close attention, we are seeing a great example of this quandary of holy days versus tradition in Nehemiah. And it shows how very difficult it is to keep God's word as time marches on, as society change, and as world conditions evolve. And as we create new traditions and customs to deal with it all. And pretty soon, in a couple of generations, no one even asks where these traditions came from. Or if they are, as currently practiced, even right-minded Well, that's enough about calendar issues for today. You know, what I so enjoy about the opening of chapter 8 in Nehemiah is the continuing and inspirational zeal of the common folks of Judah. You know, as a pastor, I live for those times when those I speak to and care for seem to enthusiastically drink in every drop of the Word of God. It was the common folks of Judah, we're told, who pressed Ezra to bring the law of Moses to them and to teach them. These people had been living in or near the ruins of their holy city for many years an unwelcome daily reminder of the ruinous effects of rebelling against the Lord. 
They were eager to hear God's Word so that they could learn and, and obey it, no doubt hoping to avoid any more future disasters. You know, what else warms my heart is that it was not only the men who came, but women and their children. This convocation was open to all who were able to be still and to understand. What this is referring to is to those who were mature enough to make sense of what they heard. So, a small child, six, seven years old perhaps, was not included in this group, while maybe a ten-year-old was. This is so very important. Because if these children could be taught the truth of the Torah from the earliest age, then the chances that they would follow it and discern the difference between God's word and man-made traditions that had been so dominant was all the greater. And here in verse 2, it is confirmed that this congregational meeting began on the first day of the seventh month, which from a biblical standpoint would have been the occasion of Yom Teruah. So from the Torah perspective, they were at least following the commandment for the biblical feast of Yom Teruah to meet together in a holy convocation. But, you know, the logical question comes, were they actually celebrating the Feast of Trumpets or were they celebrating Babylonian New Year? Or perhaps some mix. There's nothing here that tells us. However, since the earliest documentation we have of this day being called Rosh Hashanah was in the first century AD, then it's highly unlikely that here, some 500 years earlier, that it was New Year's that they were celebrating. Well, verse 3 explains that Ezra read the Torah to the people from early morning, meaning first light, until noon probably around six hours. They were standing not in the temple courtyard because women were present, but rather near the water gate. Now more details are given to us. A special wooden platform was constructed so Ezra could be seen and heard by a large crowd. This is our first clue that indeed this day had been anticipated for some time and preparations had been made well in advance. Making a large platform like this using rudimentary carpentry tools would have taken some weeks. Thirteen named men stood on either side of him. Leaders of some sort, no doubt. Who were they? What exactly they represented? It's not stated. Might they have been Levites? Maybe priests? All we have is thirteen listed names. We don't know. The reading of the Torah was preceded by prayer. We are told that this prayer was essentially praising the Lord. Now I want to comment here that almost every time we see the word Lord, or in the complete Jewish Bible, Adonai, in these verses, and in most verses of the Old Testament, the word in the text is not Lord. And it's not Adonai. It is Yudhevavheh, Yehoveh the ineffable name of God that the Lord himself told to Moses. So verse 6 says, Ezra Barach Yehoveh, using his actual name, not a generic form of God, not a title. And Ezra then goes on to use 
and incorporate a popular Persian term for God because he calls him Great God. Hagadol Elohim. Now we won't find this term used anywhere else in the Hebrew Scriptures. Only here. But considering that the bulk of the people that were standing before him had come back to Judah from Persia, it's understandable that Ezra would use such a familiar term in this setting. Now we get some vivid imagery here of the customs of worship of the Jews in that era. They shout, Amen, out loud, in unison, to denote public agreement with what Ezra had just prayed. They raise up their hands to the Lord to show their need for Him. They bow their heads before the Lord to show their reverence to Him. And they fall prostrate on the ground in submission to Him. There are many symbolic ways for us to express love and admiration and loyalty and humility and so on to God and while we only see a few of them here we all need to be very accepting of our brothers and sisters in the faith who have their own favorite ways I can assure you that what most of you personally choose to do in that regard has as much to do with your personality as an extrovert or an introvert as it does with whatever religious background and culture you grew up under it is what it is, it is we humans who tend to get all bent out of shape over the various expressions towards the Lord that happens around us in a worship service not God verse 7 gives us a list of 13 more people but this time, they are positively identified as Levites. Now, should we see any significance in the number 13 since we've now encountered it twice? Possibly. But I think most anything we could think of would be, pans- would be fanciful. What was the function of these 13 Levites? It was to help the people understand what Ezra had read to them. Look, this really isn't even at all hard to picture. The Jewish people were hearing the law, something they were completely unfamiliar with. And they needed help in just how to grasp what some of those laws and commandments meant. Now that they had to apply them in the context of their time, in their living conditions, as Jews living nearly a millennium after when the law was first given. Interested people have questions when they're being taught. And we were told earlier that these folks were eager and attentive. But it also appears that these 13 Levites had at least portions of Torah scrolls in their hands. And they were reading and translating and explaining to individuals or small groups. Now I can only explain this by saying that I imagine not everyone in the crowd could hear Ezra clearly. And so the Levites were roaming around in areas where people couldn't hear. In fact, This is precisely the function that God ordained the Levites to do, to teach lay people the Torah. Also imagine, not everyone spoke Hebrew. 
In fact, since the language of the exile in both Babylon and Persia was an early dialect of Aramaic, and even though Hebrew and Aramaic have similarities, no doubt many in the crowd knew little or no Hebrew. They needed translators to repeat what Ezra read to them in their now native tongue. Plus, the Torah was of course written in Hebrew. Now, I've been to a number of Messianic and Christian worship services in Israel. And this exact thing going on is the norm. Even though Hebrew is the official language of Israel, Israel is in reality a melting pot of languages due to so many Jews coming from Russia and Ethiopia and Poland and some English-speaking places as well. So if a congregation is able, they have translators who sit down with groups of people in the audience who speak the various languages and they will interpret the Hebrew that the, that the uh, rabbi or the pastor or the bishop is speaking and follow him along speaking in Russian, English, Polish, or Ethiopian. This is actually a pretty difficult and distracting process. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like you're standing at the foot of the Tower of Babel. People are so hungry for God's word that they will strain to learn it. In light of that, I want to close with this thought that begins with a short passage from the Gospel of Mark. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> Starting at Mark 6.1 Then Yeshua left and he went to his hometown and his Talmudim, his disciples followed him. And on Shabbat he started to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astounded and they asked, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom he's been given? What are these miracles worked through him? Isn't he just a carpenter? Isn't he just the son of Miriam, the brother of Yaakov and Yossi and Judah and Shimon? I mean, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, The only place people don't respect the prophets in his hometown, among his own relatives, in his own house, so he could do no miracles there other than lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of trust. Then he went through the surrounding towns and villages teaching. If the speaking and teaching of God's word is not met with a proper attitude of acute interest by the hearers, and it does not bring forth a kind of responsiveness from those listening that leads to incorporating the wisdom of the word into our own lives, then the word has fallen flat. And there is no practical value to ever having been spoken in the first place. In this passage in Mark, even Yeshua our Christ was so frustrated by the lack of expectancy, by the poor attitudes of the listeners who mostly just questioned his credentials since they knew him. They knew he wasn't from the formal Jewish religious establishment. He gave up on them. 
He laid hands on a few sick people to heal them, who must have expressed some kind of trust that he could heal them. But otherwise, he was unable to do the miracles he wanted to do in the lives of these people whom he cared for. So he left. He took his message to others who wanted to hear it. To others who would accept the many wonderful blessings and miracles that he had for them. We'll continue this chapter next time.